On the night before Christmas in 1945, George and Jenny Sauter and nine of their ten children went to sleep. Around 1 a.m., a fire broke out, and George and Jenny and four of their children escaped, but the other five children were never seen again. For years, people have speculated about what really happened to the children, and the strange events from that night led some to believe that there was more to the story than initially was thought. This is the strange disappearance of the Sauter children. I'm Ashton, and welcome to The Haunted Corner. everyone. Welcome back to The Haunted Corner. In today's episode, we're covering a pretty well-known case. I got a lot of my information for the episode from a Smithsonian magazine article written by Karen Abbott called The Children Who Went Up in Smoke. This is one of the first stories I heard when I started listening to podcasts, and I hate it. So what happened to these kids, you guys? Let's get into it. The story begins with a man named George Sauter. He was born in Giorgio Sodu in Tula, Sardinia in 1895 and immigrated along with his brother to the United States in 1908. He was just 13 years old at that time. When they arrived, his brother immediately went back to Italy, which left George on his own. He had to fend for himself. So he began looking for work and eventually found a job working on the Pennsylvania railroads, carrying water and supplies to the laborers. He later moved to West Virginia, where he started his own trucking company, hauling dirt for freight construction and later for coal companies as well. One day he walked into a local store called the Music Box, and this is where he met the owner's daughter, Jenny Cipriani, who also had come over from Italy when she was three years old. The two really hit it off. They married and had 10 children between 1923 and 1943, and they settled in Fayetteville, West Virginia. The family was well known in the area, becoming known as, quote, one of the most respected middle-class families around. George was very opinionated and let people know how he felt about things from business to current events. But the one thing he wouldn't talk about was his childhood, and more specifically, why he and his brother left Italy in the first place. The family settled in, and everything seemed to be going pretty well. The last of the Sauter children, Sylvia, was born in 1942, and around that time, their second oldest son, Joe, left to serve in World War II. So a few months before the fire, a man came to the family home and asked about some hauling work. He then wandered to the back of the home 
and pointed out to Fusebox saying, quote, this is going to cause a fire someday. George kind of brushed it off, but he did think it was strange because he had just had the wiring checked with a local power company and they said everything was fine and in working condition. Around the same time, another man tried to sell the family life insurance and became absolutely enraged when George declined. He said, quote, your goddamn house is going to go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. You are going to be paid for the dirty remarks you have been making about Mussolini, end quote. George was pretty opinionated about the Italian dictator and his dislike of him. He would even get into arguments with people about it. George, again, didn't take the warning seriously, but also around that time, the older Sodder boys noticed a man parked on Highway 21, and he was watching the younger Sodder children as they walked home from school. The Sodder family celebrated on Christmas Eve in 1945. Marion, who was the oldest daughter, had been working at a dime store in downtown Fayetteville, and she surprised three of her younger sisters, Martha, Jenny, and Betty, with new toys that she had bought for them as gifts. The younger children were really excited, and they asked their mother if they could stay up past what would have been their normal bedtime. Around 10 p.m., Jenny told them they could stay up a little bit later, George and the two oldest boys, John and George Jr., who had spent the day working with their father, were already asleep. After reminding the children of the remaining chores they needed to do, Jenny took Sylvia, who was two at the time, upstairs with her, and they went to bed together. At 12.30, after everyone had fallen asleep, the phone rang. An unfamiliar female voice asked for an unfamiliar name. There was laughter and glasses clinking in the background. Jenny told the caller that they had the wrong number, and she hung up. As she was on her way back to bed, she noticed that all of the downstairs lights were still on, the curtains were open, and the front door was unlocked. She saw Marion asleep on the sofa in the living room and figured that the other kids were upstairs in bed as well. She turned off the lights, closed the curtains, locked the door, and went back to her room. She had just begun to fall back asleep when she heard one sharp, loud bang on the roof, followed by what sounded like a rolling noise. An hour later, she was woken up once again but this time by heavy smoke that was pouring into her bedroom. She immediately got up and alerted the family. George and Jenny and four of their children immediately evacuated the home. But George soon realized that five of his children were not outside. 23-year-old John, 16-year-old George Jr., 17-year-old Marion and 2-year-old Sylvia all had made it out of the house safely, which meant that 14-year-old Maurice, 12-year-old Martha, 9-year-old Louise, 8-year-old Jenny, and 5-year-old Betty were all still inside the house. George figured they were trapped in their upstairs bedroom, and he knew he had to get back into the house to save them. He broke a window to re-enter the house, 
slicing a piece of skin from his arm in the process. He couldn't see anything through the smoke and the fire, which had engulfed all of the downstairs rooms, the living and the dining room, the kitchen, the office, and Jenny and George's bedroom. The staircase was also engulfed in flames, so there was no way for him to reach the children's bedroom through the house. So he raced back outside, hoping to reach them through the upstairs windows. But the ladder that was always kept propped up against the house was mysteriously missing. So his mind is moving a million miles per minute at that point. He was trying to figure out what he should do next. And that's when he got the idea to drive one of his two coal trucks up to the house and climb on top of it to reach the windows. But even though his trucks were running perfectly the day before, neither of them would start at that time. So he was frantic. He was trying to think of what his next step should be. He tried to get water from a rain barrel nearby to put the fire out, but this barrel of water was frozen solid. I mean, it was December in West Virginia, but still. Meanwhile, Marion ran to a neighbor's house to call the Fayetteville Fire Department, but she couldn't get a response from the operator. A neighbor who saw the fire made a call to the fire department from a nearby tavern, but again, no operator responded. So this neighbor, who was pretty frustrated at the time, drove into town and tracked down Fire Chief F.G. Morris, who initiated Fayetteville's version of a fire alarm. It was a phone tree where, like, one firefighter would call another one who would call another one, and they'd so on and so forth. So while the firemen are playing phone tag, this poor family had no choice but to sit by and watch their home burn down, seemingly with five of their family members still inside. The home was destroyed in 45 minutes. The fire department was only two and a half miles away, but the crew didn't arrive until eight o'clock the next morning, by which point the Sodder's home had been reduced to a smoking pile of ash. The fire department, who was low on manpower due to the war, included Jenny's brother, who arrived at the scene the next morning too. Now the chief, F.J. Morris, said the next day that the already slow response was further hampered by his inability to drive the fire truck, requiring that he wait until someone who could drive was available. So he was celebrating the Christmas holiday a little too hard. By the time the fire department arrived the next morning, there wasn't a lot that they could do aside from search the remnants of the home for the children's remains. But they found nothing. Or did they? (laughs) Chief Morris suggested that the blaze had been hot enough to completely cremate the bodies. But according to another account, they did find a few bone fragments and internal organs. But they chose not to tell the family. 
It has also been noted by modern fire professionals that their search was cursory at best. George and Jenny were too grief-stricken to attend the funeral on January 2nd of 1946, but their surviving children did. A state police inspector combed through the rubble and attributed the fire to faulty wiring. Morris told George to leave the site of the fire, which was what was left of their home, undisturbed so that the state fire marshal's office could conduct a more thorough investigation. However, after four days, George and his wife couldn't bear the site anymore, so he covered the basement with five feet of of dirt, intending to preserve the site as a memorial. The coroner's office issued five death certificates just before the new year, attributing the causes to, quote, fire or suffocation. But the family members weren't fully convinced that the children were dead. Specifically Jenny, she wasn't really buying it. She couldn't understand how five children could perish in a fire and leave no bones, no evidence of anything, nothing. How is it possible that there were remnants of household appliances that were found in what was left of the basement of the home, but there was no evidence of the kids? So Jenny decided to put her questions to the test. She began burning animal bones, chicken bones, pork chop bones, beef joints, etc., to see if the fire would completely destroy them and leave no evidence behind like what had happened with her family. But each time, she was left with a bunch of charred bones. Jenny even went as far as to reach out to an employee at a crematorium who informed her that the bones remain, that bones remain after bodies are burned for two hours at 2,000 degrees. And as we all remember, the house was destroyed in 45 minutes. So that's really strange. And things would continued to get more strange. A telephone repairman told the Sauter family that their lines appeared to have been cut and not burned. They then realized that if the fire had been electrical, the result of faulty wiring, as the official report had stated, then the power would have been dead. So how can you explain the lights on in the downstairs rooms? A witness came forward claiming he saw a man at the fire scene taking a block and tackle used for removing car engines. And some people speculated that he could be the reason that George's trucks wouldn't start that night. However, one of George's sons-in-law told the Charleston Gazette Mail in 2013 that he had come to believe that Sauter and his sons might have, in their haste to to start the trucks, flooded the engines. One day, while the family was visiting the site, Sylvia found a hard rubber object in the yard. Jenny recalled hearing that the hard thud on the roof, the rolling sound, etc., and George concluded that it was a napalm pineapple bomb of the type that was used in warfare. Some also believe it's possible that the wrong number phone call to the solder house might have also somehow been connected to the fire. So in addition to the strange circumstances, came reported sightings of the children after the fire. 
One of the earliest reported sightings came from a woman who claimed to have seen the children looking out the window of a car as it passed by while the fire was in progress. Another woman who was working at a tourist stop between Fayetteville and Charleston, around 50 miles west, claimed that she served the children breakfast the morning after the fire. She also said that there was a car in the parking lot that morning that had Florida license plates. A woman at a Charleston hotel saw the children's photos in a newspaper and said she had seen four of the five children a week after the fire. She said, quote, the children were accompanied by two men and two women, of all of Italian extraction. I do not remember the exact date. However, the entire party did register at, a, at the hotel and stayed in a large room with several beds. They registered about midnight. I tried to talk to the children in a friendly manner, but the men appeared hostile and refused to allow me to talk to these children. One of the men looked at me in a hostile manner, and he turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian. Immediately, the whole party stopped talking to me. I sensed that I was being frozen out, and so I said nothing more. They left early the next morning, end quote. The family continued to search for answers. In 1947, George and Jenny sent a letter about the case to the FBI, and they did receive a reply from one J. Edgar Hoover himself. He said, quote, Although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the investigative jurisdiction of this bureau, end quote. Hoover's agents said that they would assist if they could get permission from the local authorities, but, of course, the Fayetteville Police and Fire Departments refused. So cool, everyone is being super helpful to this poor family, right? No. The, the Sodders then hired a private investigator named C.C. Tinsley, and he discovered that the insurance salesman who had threatened George was a member of the coroner's journey that deemed the fire accidental. He also heard a very interesting story from a Fayetteville minister about F.J. Morris, the fire chief. Although Morris had claimed no remains were found, he supposedly confided that he discovered a, quote, heart in the ashes. He hid it in a dynamite box and buried it at the scene. The private investigator persuaded the fire chief to show him the spot. He's like, what's up? Let's see, you know. Together, they dug up the box and took it straight to the local, to a local funeral director who looked into it and concluded that it was a beef liver that hadn't been burned by the fire at all. Soon afterward, the Sodders heard rumors that the fire chief had told others that the contents of the box had not been found in the fire at all, that he had buried the beef liver in the rubble in the hope that finding any remains would placate the family enough to stop the investigation. Cool guy. Awesome. So the family really had nothing, but over the years, sightings and strange events continued. In one event, George saw a newspaper photo of school children in New York City 
And he was convinced that one of them was his daughter, Betty. So he drove to Manhattan in search of the child, but her parents refused to speak to him. Like, obviously. But I understand why he went looking. I would, too. I would never stop looking for them. In August of 1949, the Sauters decided to conduct a new search at the fire scene and brought in a pathologist named Oscar B. Hunter. The excavation was thorough, and they came across several small objects, including damaged coins, a partly burned dictionary, and several shards of vertebrae. The pathologist sent the bones to the Smithsonian Institution, which gave the following report, quote, The human bones consist of four lumbar vertebrae belonging to one individual. Since the transverse recesses are fused, the age of this individual at death should have been 16 or 17 years. The top limit of age should have been about 22 since the centra, which normally fuse at 23, are still unfused. On this basis, the bones show greater skeletal skeletal maturation than one would expect for a 14-year-old boy, the oldest missing solder child. It is, however, possible, although not probable, for a boy 14 and a half years old to show 16 to 17 maturation, end quote. The vertebrae showed no evidence that it had been exposed to fire, the report said, and quote, it is very strange that no other bones were found in the allegedly careful excavation of the basement of the house, end quote. Noting that the house reportedly burned for only about half an hour or so, about 45 minutes, it said that, quote, one would expect to find the full skeletons of five children rather than only four vertebrae, end quote. The bones the report concluded, were most likely in the supply of dirt George used to fill in the basement to create the memorial for the children. And when I read that, I'm like, okay, but where did, like, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean it was in the supply of dirt? <laughs> of dirt? That doesn't make sense. So where did the dirt come from? And where, what? So there's just bones in this dirt? Okay. The report prompted two hearings at the Capitol in Charleston, during which Governor Oki L. Patterson and State Police Superintendent W.E. Burchett told the Sodders their search was, quote, hopeless and declared the case closed. So thanks, guys. Way to keep up the morale. But George and Jenny were not deterred by this. They erected a billboard along Route 16 and passed out flyers offering a $5,000 reward for information leading to the recovery of their children. They soon increased the amount to $10,000. In 1968, more than 20 years after the fire, Jenny went to get the mail and found an envelope addressed only to her. It was postmarked in Kentucky but had no return address. Inside was a photo of a man in his mid-twenties. On its flip side was a cryptic handwritten note that read, quote, Louise Sauter, I love brother Frankie, LL boys, A90132 or 35, end quote. So Jenny and George couldn't deny the resemblance to their Louise, who was nine at the time of the fire. 
beyond the obvious similarities, dark curly hair, dark brown eyes. They had the same straight, strong nose, the same upward tilt of the left eyebrow. Once again, they hired a private detective and sent him to Kentucky, but then they never heard from him again. George Sauter died in 1969. Jenny and her surviving children, except John, who never talked about the night of the fire except to say that the family should accept what happened and move on with their lives, continued to seek answers to their questions about the missing children's fate. After George's death, Jenny stayed in the family home, putting up fencing around it and adding additional rooms. For the rest of her life, she wore black and mourning and tended the guarding at the side of the former house. After her death in 1989, the family finally took the weathered, worn billboard down. Sylvia Sauter Paxton, the youngest of their surviving Sauter siblings, died in 2021. She was in the house on the night of the fire, which she said was her earliest memory. She said, quote, I was the last one of the kids to leave the home, end quote. She and her father often stayed up late talking about what might have happened. Quote, I experienced their grief for a long time, end quote. She believed that her siblings survived that night and assisted with efforts to find them and publicize the case. Her daughter said in 2006, quote, she promised my grandparents she wouldn't let the story die, that she would do everything she could, end quote. And that is the story of the missing Sauter children. I'd love to hear what you guys think. What happened to these kids? Where are these kids? Where'd they go? What happened to them? Do you guys think they died in the fire? Or are you one of many who believe that something else happened that night and the children escaped the blaze? Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. The sources for today's episode will be listed on the blog post for the episode, which will be linked in the show notes. Check out the other episodes of The Haunted Corner available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts with new episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to share your support, head over to patreon.com. You'll have access to the exclusive Patreon-only episodes early and ad-free access to episodes plus a lot more. You can visit patreon.com forward slash The Haunted Corner to join now. Follow us on social media at The Haunted Corner on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to tell a friend. If you have a case suggestion or correction to share, please send it to thehauntedcorner at gmail.com or submit it through the website. Until next time, be kind and take care of yourself, and we'll see you soon. Bye.